Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. We're going to read verses 1 through 3. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word, and I pray that it is, as it is preached, uh, that you would uh, take the weakness and the frailty of uh, our humanity and that you would quicken the word and in our weakness, your strength would be made perfect. Uh, we thank you for the scripture and it is our desire to respond to you in a way that would glorify your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> When people look at a passage on fasting like this one, frequently they do not apply it to themselves. Now, they read it and they believe it, but they don't apply it to themselves. I think many times the thoughts that are going through their heads is, you know, we don't live in the first century. We're not leaders. We're certainly not prophets and apostles. And so the prayer and the fasting and the power that goes with it is discounted as well. But I think that what Luke is writing here is he's indicating that fasting was a regular part of the church's ministry. Now, I'm not going to mandate that you guys uh, fast any more than I'm going to mandate that you enjoy the delicious uh, dessert that we're going to have at at least by faith that we're going to have. I don't know who's going to bring it, but uh, we need to learn both to feast and to fast. Uh, to God's glory. And if you have not been doing any fasting over the past year, you've just been jipping yourself. You've been robbing yourself of the Lord's uh, blessings. The great Presbyterian theologian Charles Hodge said, All eminently pious persons have been more or less addicted to this mode of spiritual culture. Now, why would they be more or less addicted to fasting? Well, Hodge knew that these people knew that there was a power and there was a blessing that flowed through fasting that we cannot have apart from fasting. There was something about fasting that made them highly value uh, this discipline. I recently read a book uh, that was dealing with uh, many of the blessings that flow out of fasting and it just it blew me out of the water to see all of these testimonies of the incredible things that God uh, had done. Uh, there were people who have uh, struggled and struggled for years to overcome uh, uh, crack addictions, addictions to various drugs. And they said after two weeks of fasting, they had no more desires for this drug, no more cravings for it. Uh, other people talked about how fasting for three or four days had really elevated their faith and their prayers. Other people spoke of healings that had come into their bodies. In fact, there was one uh, that was really strange and there were a number of uh, uh, healings like this, but people who have been underweight and have not for years been able to put on any weight, they've been dangerously thin, they fasted for a week and they started gaining weight. Maybe they lost the tapeworms, I don't know. <laughs> but it's fascinating, fascinating stories that came out 
In fact, there are so many blessings that accrue through fasting that Jeremy Taylor said, he who would recount the benefits of fasting might just as well in the next page attempt to enumerate the benefits of medicine. And his point was, you can't fit them all onto one page. Augustine, Calvin, Luther, Jonathan Edwards, Owen, Flavel, many, many others have joined their agreement with the Scripture that there is a close connection between fasting and incredible spiritual vitality and vigor in the Christian walk. And you might say, well, that just doesn't make any sense to me because scientifically I can't see any cause and effect between fasting and what's going on in these people's lives. Let me tell you a little secret. The visible is not the only thing that exists in this cause and effect universe. Okay, Now, we know that, but many times we don't live as if that is true. Uh, there is a cause and effect relationship between spiritual unseen realities and the power that we have in our Christian walk. And there is a relationship between fasting and those unseen realities. Now, this morning, uh, I could have preached on... An, uh, two or three other uh, topics that relate to these uh, verses. For example, uh, this is probably the most frequently cited verse in books on missions because this is where Paul's missionary journeys began. And uh, there are some principles that begin to flow out of this passage that various books will uh, draw out. Um, this is a wonderful passage dealing with the whole issue of God's call upon people's lives. Uh, I love uh, some of the teaching that relates to that. If we analyze the historical situation of Antioch, we would find out that this small town and the church in it, e even though it's really in a backwater in some ways, had more influence worldwide than Jerusalem had. And so there are some principles that we could learn in terms of what it takes to be a church that has an influence. But I think at the root, at the heart of all of those other things is a phrase in verse 2 that says they ministered to the Lord and fasted. They ministered to the Lord and fasted. That's all I'm going to deal with this morning. I'm not even going to touch on any of the other topics that we could have been uh, preaching on. We're going to look first of all at the context of this fasting because I think we can get ourselves into legalism if we do not do so. And the first thing I want to point out is that the people who were fasting in these verses were believers. They were justified people who were already secure in God's grace. In fact, unbelievers, uh, they can fast all they want to and it's not going to do a thing. Uh, it will not uh, in any way, uh, earn them God's favor. It will not uh, impact them positively. Isaiah 58 speaks of people who tried to gain God's favor through fasting and it didn't work and it really frustrated them. They're upset. And here's what they complained to God. Why have we fasted and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you have taken no notice? Isaiah 58, verse 3. Now, that whole chapter is a chapter that deals with fasting and it talks about the incredible blessings that can flow into your life if you will fast properly. But it also talks about things that will hinder your fasting and make your fasting utterly ineffective. But one of the things I just want to point out here is you will read that chapter in vain and find any reference to the idea that fasting will gain God's favor. It will not do so. It is only the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ that can give us favor with God and can give us power with God in our day-by-day -day walk. 
But once we have been justified by God's grace, in other words, our sins have been legally given to Christ, imputed to Christ, and His righteousness has been legally imputed to us. Once we've been justified by grace, the rest of our lives has to be lived by grace as well. You can't just say, okay, you get saved by grace and then the rest of your life is not by grace. Grace has to... Uh, surround and undergird every discipline we engage in, such as fasting, or it's going to be for man's glory, not for God's glory. It's going to be of man and through man and to man. Here's how Zechariah words it and shows how it's really the opposite of Christian fasting. Zechariah 7, verses 5 through 6. When you fasted and mourned, in the fifth and seventh months during those 70 years, did you really fast for me? For me? When you eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? He's saying it's not even going to do you any good to eat. <laughs> if you're not doing it by God's grace, whether you're fasting or whether you're eating, it's got to be done to God's glory. And until you are justified and until you are uh, already have God's favor... Nothing you do is going to achieve anything. So even as a believer, we've got to say, okay, we're, we're saved by grace. Now, when I'm fasting, when I'm praying, when I'm engaging any ministry, I need to do it by God's grace or it's not acceptable in God's sight. We fast out of a sense of God's favor, not out of a, a sense of trying to gain God's favor. Now, have I uh, hit that subject hard enough? Hopefully I have. Okay, that's just one side of the coin, though, of point A. The other side is that fasting does indeed relate to believers. It is not legalistic like so many people want to say. These are believers who have been justified, who are Holy Spirit baptized people, uh, who are secure in God's grace, and they don't see any inconsistency whatsoever between fasting on the one hand and God's grace on the other hand. Instead, they see this as part and parcel of God's grace working in their lives. And so that's the other side of things is that God's grace enables us to glorify him and to fulfill Romans 11:36 that of him and through him and to him are all things. That should be the goal of our fasting. So that's the first contextual clue. These are believers. Fasting is appropriate uh, for believers. The second obvious contextual marker is that Acts chapter 13 comes after Acts chapter 2. And the reason I make such an obvious statement is there are lots of Christians out there who absolutely insist it is not appropriate to fast after Pentecost. <clears throat> and some of them will, man, they'll get very angry with you. I had one guy, he was so in my face talking about this. And... I think where they've come to this conclusion is through a misreading of Luke chapter 5. Actually, I don't even think it's a misreading of Luke 5. I think it's their stomach dictating to what their head is uh, thinking. But they do have a pretty clever argument in Luke 5, and you might as well be familiar with it, because this is probably the most frequently cited passage uh, to indicate that we don't have to fast anymore. Luke chapter 5, and beginning at verse 33. <clears throat> Then they said to him, <clears throat> Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? 
But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Now, you might wonder, why in the world would they appeal to that Scripture? It seems uh, on the surface to be indicating that in the New Testament period, they're going to be fasting. But they really do have a pretty interesting argument. Here's how it goes. They say that the days that the bridegroom is going to be absent from them is not the days that we are living in right now. It's the three days that he is in the tomb. And once Christ um, uh, ascended to heaven and he sent the Holy Spirit, he came to his people through the Holy Spirit. And since he's with his people, the words, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world, uh, can be true of us. And since the bridegroom is with us to the end of the age, then it's not appropriate to fast. The only time it's appropriate to fast is when the bridegroom is absent from his people. So there is a certain logic to their argument. Let me give you quickly five reasons why that is a fallacious argument. First, when did Jesus say that statement, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age? He said it after his death, but he said it before Pentecost, right? Ten days before Pentecost, to be precise. And so you need to ask the question, now wait a shake. If it's the days that he's in the grave that he is absent from us, then in what way was he absent in the grave that he's not absent during the 10 days before Pentecost? Okay, so they say it's after Pentecost that, lo, I am with you always. But Jesus said, no, lo, I am with you always uh, goes from 10 days before Pentecost and future. That's the first problem with the argument. Second reason is that Jesus and the disciples did indeed fast during their ministry. They did so a number of times, and I'll be citing a few verses in, in just a second. And so he's not talking about a total absence of fasting, even if their claim about when the bridegroom is absent is true. Third, Jesus really, I think, is contrasting infrequent fasting that they were, going, that they were doing during his ministry with frequent fasting in the future. So, John the Baptist fasted often, just like the Pharisees did. Pharisees, we know, fasted twice a week. So, they fasted often. The disciples were not fasting often. But in the future, they are going to be fasting often. Now, just think about that for a moment. How in the world could that be a contrast with three days in the, in the grave? Because the disciples did indeed fast often. Jesus began his ministry with 40 days of fasting. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus and the disciples fasted for three days. So that's hardly a contrast with the three days in the, in the grave. Then in Mark 9, verse 29, he said that the reason that he was able to cast out the demon on that occasion and that they could not was because of fasting. He said, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. And I want you to notice how absolute that is. There isn't any, any other reason you can cast out, but by fasting... He could cast them out. The implication is he was engaged in fasting. In um, John 4, verse 2, Jesus refused food. We know, even though it's not recorded in the Gospels, that they had to have fasted on the Day of Atonement. That's at least one day out of each of the three and a half years that they were there. So there's at least three more fasts. John 2, 17, quotes Psalm 69, 10 as being the words of Christ where he says, the zeal of your house has eaten me up. Now, let me read you the rest of that sentence, which is also the words of Christ. 
Because the zeal of your house has eaten me up and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me when I wept and chastened my soul with fasting. So apparently Jesus was fasting uh, when he wept over Jerusalem and when he cleansed the temple. Uh, There simply is no contrast between their infrequent... If they had done no fasting, okay, there would be some logic to it. But their infrequent fastings and somehow there's supposed to be frequent fastings during the three days, that kind of a contest just does not uh, uh, fall out. The fourth problem with this view is that the absence that Jesus had while he was in the womb was not as to his godhood. It was as to his manhood. He continued to be with them as to his godhood because if he ceased to be omnipresent at any time, he would cease to be God, right? So, what he was absent from them with in the grave was they couldn't see him. Uh, His humanity was not with them, to be able to talk with them, etc. Okay, well, then the next logical question is, in what sense is Christ with us now? He's not with us now as to his manhood. We don't see him. His body is not walking amongst us. And... If he was, some people say, well, he's uh, omnipresent in terms of his body, but he would cease to be man if he was omnipresent in terms of his body. And so I think you can see that there really is no way in which Jesus was, uh, is um, present with us now, that he was not present with uh, them in the grave, or that he was absent from them in the grave, that he is not also absent from us now uh, as to his humanity. And uh, so, really, the the contrast is between infrequent fastings during Christ's ministry, frequent fastings afterwards. If you read the rest of the New Testament, you'll see there actually are a lot of hints that they did frequently fast. Let me give you one. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 27. Paul says that he was in fastings often. In fastings often. The fifth reason that this is uh, really fallacious is actually point C. I shouldn't have put that out as a separate point there, but... Um, these leaders in Acts 13 obviously didn't interpret Luke 5 the way a lot of modern antinomians do. They didn't see it as being inappropriate for Christians after Pentecost to be fasting. And so if it was appropriate for them to fast 15 years after the death of Christ, surely it is today. So it was justified saints who fasted. They did it after the death of Christ. It was condoned by church leaders and apostles and prophets who had the mind of Christ. Fourth thing that the context teaches us is that this was done by a group and not simply solo. Now, I bring this up because uh, there are a lot of people based on Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, who say if you fast, you shouldn't let anybody else know about it. Now, that does, is what Jesus says there. When you fast, you need to go do it in secret, right? You shouldn't be doing it out public. But what Christ is contrasting there is bad motives with good motives. He's saying if the only time that you guys fast, and he also applies it to prayer and charitable deeds, the only times you guys do that is when other people notice you've got wrong motives. He says, if you're fasting so that others can see you, you're proud about it. I've got some homework for you to do. I want you to go out there and you start fasting where nobody's going to see you. That's great homework for crucifying uh, your pride. But he's not giving an absolute rule that you can never fast in public. 
because I think this passage here, Acts 13, 1 through 3, is a de facto interpretation of Matthew chapter 6. In effect, they are saying, oh, that wasn't an absolute rule. That's homework for people who are struggling with pride. And there needs to be at least some times when you pray in private, at least some times when you fast in private or sometimes when you give charitable deeds. But if it was an absolute rule, then we couldn't be praying up here uh, in a public worship service. Because the same rule that applies to prayer applies to fasting. So, that's the, 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 the next um, contextual clue. The fifth contextual factor I think is significant is that this fasting was the occasion for the Spirit's guidance. Verse 2 of Acts 13 says, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said. Now, I put that in the context uh, category because we can't manipulate God. We can't say, okay, I'm going to, uh, God has to come through. If I fast and pray right now, he's got to come through. We can't manipulate him. But it is interesting how frequently in the scripture, God gives guidance in the midst of prayer and fasting. And he also pours out many other uh, blessings of his spirit as well. Let me give you some examples. In Exodus 33, Moses longed to see more of God's glory, and it was in the context of fasting that God shows him more of His glory. There are other times when He pours out His Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. You look at those references, and you will find frequently the people had been engaged in prayer and fasting. Uh, One of my favorite revivals in the Old Testament was under Jehoshaphat. And it says, Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Second Chronicles 20, verse 3. Uh, when Rehoboam and Hezekiah longed for a fresh visitation of the Spirit in their land, what do they do? They call for a fast. They humble themselves. Uh, Arthur Wallace points out that in the book of Joel, there is a close connection between the three calls to fasting and Joel's prophecy of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Now, what preceded the pouring out of the Spirit on Cornelius. Four days of fasting. Now, you just see this happening over and over again in the Scripture. And so, here's what I would say. If you long for a fresh visitation of the Holy Spirit in your life individually, in your family, in our church, if you long with, uh, with Paul that you might know Him and the power of His resurrection, then God's Spirit may be stirring you up to be engaged with Paul in fastings often. Bruce Hunt, one of our missionaries in Korea, relates absolutely miraculous changes that occurred in believers' lives uh, uh, through prayer and fasting. Charles Spurgeon said, Our seasons of fasting and prayer at the tabernacle have been high days indeed. Never has heaven's gate stood wider. Never have our hearts been nearer the central glory. The final contextual issue that we see is that verse 3 shows even after the Holy Spirit's already given guidance, and told them very clearly exactly who's going to be going out into the mission field. They call for another fast. And so there's, there seems to be something more that they are seeking from the Lord's uh, hand in here. They saw the setting apart of missionaries as being so important that they said, boy, we, we better call the church together for prayer and fasting. And they did so. Now, this is in such stark contrast to what I see going on in many churches today. Even in the PCA, I see churches who will have elections 
and who will have ordinations of officers without so much as a prayer meeting being added to their schedule. It's just business as usual. Now, I want you to turn with me to Acts 14, verse 23, and look at the contrast that we see here. And when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord. In every church, when there was elders who were being elected, every church, they set them apart with prayer and fasting. So, those are some samples of the kinds of contexts in which in the Bible you will find fasting occurring. Now, this is not an exhaustive list because I didn't want to exhaust you, but uh, if you want to study this subject out a little bit further, I do have an outline that gives a lot more context. I've got some books that I can recommend to you to do a little bit further research. But let's move on to Roman numeral 2. Luke does explicitly give two purposes for fasting, and the first purpose is in verse 2. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted. I want you to notice the Godward focus there. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted. The word for ministered is a, an interesting word there. It's a word used for the Old Testament priests when they would offer up sacrifices. And so he is saying here that the prayer and the fasting that they were engaging in was seen as being a ministry to the Lord. Every bit as much of a ministry as the priests in the Old Testament offering up sacrifices. Let me give you another example. Luke 2 verse 37 speaks of aged Anna as one who served God with fastings and prayers night and day. She served God with fastings and prayers night and day. Uh, there may not be a lot that you can do in terms of ministry and service, but you can fast, you can pray, and Luke 2 indicates that will be received by the Lord as a service every bit as much as going to the mission field is a service to the Lord. And you might wonder, how in the world can fasting in any way be said to be serving God? I mean, God doesn't need anything to start with, and so we need to start there, but how can it serve the Lord? And let me give you some hints that the Scripture gives. I would say, first of all, it serves God by fulfilling God's purposes that all things submit to Him, glorify Him, and depend upon Him. I've already read Romans 11.36. Here's the purpose for the whole universe. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be the glory forever. And so when we fast, what we're doing is we're denying ourselves to focus on God. Uh, we're making ourselves realize how needy, how dependent we are upon God. We're humbling ourselves. We're destroying the idol of our stomach. And the Scripture says for many people, their stomach is an idol. They'd never think of not bowing down to worship their stomach. If their stomach says, feed me, whoo, they're right there to feed their stomach. It doesn't matter what the situation might be. It's an idol. They worship it. But um, it destroys the idolatry of the stomach. And all of those things drive us deeper and deeper into God's purpose for this entire universe. Um, this, in turn, makes us more receptive to receiving of the good things from God. Uh, when we humble ourselves, God lifts us up. When we put Him first, He puts us first. When we abandon our own agendas, He opens our eyes to recognize what His agendas are. Psalm 25, verse 14 says, The secret of the Lord is with those who fear Him, and He will show them His covenant. And so, ironically, when we minister to God in this way, God ministers the most to us. 
When Moses ministered to the heart of God, when he was in prayer and fasting, God gave new revelation to Moses. Uh, he showed Moses his glory. Uh, he drew Moses closer into his heart. When Anna prayed and fasted, what happened? She's ministering to God. She's giving out of her heart to the Lord, but the Lord gives blessing and revelation into her heart. And that's exactly the same thing that's happening here in Acts chapter 13. And so God is not just concerned about the outflow of the lake of our lives. He's concerned about the inflow. And one of the things that he guarantees is when we minister to him with outflow, we can never outgive the Lord. So that's the first uh, purpose that uh, he gives. The second purpose is that fasting transforms our prayers and causes them to grow. Uh, verse 3 says, having fasted and prayed. Now, you look that up in a concordance, you'll find that phrase occurring 12 times in the Bible. But the concept of fasting and prayer being connected together is repeatedly many more times given. Fasting needs prayer in order to keep fasting from degenerating into a man-centered exercise. But prayer needs fasting for prayer to go. There is kind of a feeding off of each other that those two disciplines have. Andrew Murray once said, prayer needs fasting for its full growth. Prayer is the one hand with which we grasp the invisible. Fasting is the other hand with which we let go of the visible. And it does so in a number of ways. Uh, over and over again, Scripture says, when you fast, you're humbling yourself before your sovereign God. So what does God say happens? He resists the proud, but he lifts up the humble. He gives grace to the humble. So what's happening is that fasting is ushering us into the supernatural. It's giving God gives more grace to the humble. So it's ushering us into the supernatural. It um, thirdly increases our faith. Fourthly, it realigns our priorities. Fifth, it transforms our prayer motives from being selfish prayer motives to being God-centered prayer motives. Sixth, Calvin says that fasting creates an ardency, creates a fervency in our prayer and worship we would not otherwise have. Matthew Henry agreed. He said, fasting is a means to curb the flesh and the desires of it and to make us more lively in religious exercise. Now, you'd think it'd be the opposite. We'd just be so worn out and tired and our, our knees are trembling, you know, when you're fasting. But he says, no, it does the exact opposite. It makes us so fervent. It draws our heart out to him. A dual Wesley in a marvelous book that he has on prayer says, really, this effect goes and flows in both directions. He says, fasting can deepen hunger for God to work. Spiritual hunger and fasting have a reciprocal power. Each deepens and strengthens the other. Each makes the other more effective. When your spiritual hunger becomes very deep, you may even lose the desire for food. All of the most intense forms of prevailing prayer can be deepened, clarified, and greatly empowered by fasting. Now, to me, this is just a fabulous benefit that comes from uh, from uh, fasting and it shows the graciousness of God. Some people think, oh, you know, fasting, that's so legalistic. No, it shows the graciousness of God. We cannot earn God's favor, but we receive God's favor through fasting. There's a vast difference between the two. We can never earn God's favor, but we receive it. It's just the hand of faith that receives from God and says, Lord, here I am humbling myself, making myself dependent upon you. And God says, great. I'm going to pour into your life uh, the blessings uh, that I have already uh, purchased for you. 
Okay, now, if everything we have said so far is true, we would expect to see at least some hints in this passage that there are results, positive results, that flow into the lives of believers. And I think there are two things that are hinted at. Uh, Verse 2 is not explicit, but it's a hint that guidance actually comes through fasting. That it's not just a context, it it hints that it comes through fasting. Verse 2 As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Throughout the ages, this is one of the most consistent purposes and outflows that you will see in people who have written about this subject. They say, God so frequently gives His guidance into people's lives. If you have an issue you're puzzled over, I would encourage you to just take a couple of days off with nothing but a Bible and some water and pray to God and uh, fast before Him. Ezra 8, 21-23 says this, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him the right way for us. That's the result of fasting. To seek from Him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road because we had spoken to the king saying, The hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek Him, but His power and His wrath are against all those who forsaken Him. Now, he's opened his big mouth and he's thinking, Oh, great. Now, I can't even ask for an escort. So, he's kind of forced to trust God and it scared him. But verse 23, it says, So we fasted and entreated our God for this, and He answered our prayer. So why did they fast? He says, to seek Him for the right way for us. It was guidance that they needed. Now, you might be stepping out into uncharted territory. Maybe you're a young guy that's uh, just getting out of college, or you're thinking of uh, starting some new kind of a thing, and you're thinking, man, I'm just as nervous as those guys were back then. I would encourage you, take fasting seriously. The Lord can open up the eyes of your understanding to see what it is that you need to do. Judges 20 has all Israel fasting. It says, as they inquired of the Lord what they ought to do about the horrible iniquity in Benjamin. So, that's the first result, guidance. Second result of this fasting that's hinted at is power and blessing. Now, the reason I say this is a second result, not a first one, is because The fasting in verse 3 is not to seek guidance. The one in verse 2, they receive guidance. But this is not to receive guidance here. They already know exactly what God wants them to do. God's already told them, separate Barnabas and Saul to me, and, uh, and they're going to be going out to be missionaries. I believe now they're fasting because they see the huge tasks that's before them. They're overwhelmed by it and they're saying, Lord, we need your power. We need your protection. We need your blessing to flow in our lives. And it's a good thing because when you keep reading through verses 4 through 12, which we're not going to do today, when you keep reading through there, you see they're immediately up against uh, the, um, what do they they call them, Uh, a, a sorcerer who was opposing their ministry. And then they have the uh, civil magistrate who comes to Christ. And you look through their ministry and you see immediately Barnabas and Saul are going to be up against all kinds of opposition, all kinds of challenges, and they're going to be taking territory away from Satan. And they recognize as we go into this ministry, huge potential, but also huge potential for, for you know, disaster coming against us. So they seek the Lord in prayer and fasting. 
Now, let me, let me outline some of the ways in which fasting brings God's power and blessing to bear in our lives. First of all, it aids us in our mortification of sinful desires. Mortification is just a $10 word that means putting to death, okay, our sinful desires. Uh, when you fast because of sin and you pray for victory over that given sin, what you are doing is, in effect, you are putting the words of Job in your mouth when he said, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. You're proving you really believe that. Lord, I hate this sin so much, I'm willing to go hungry uh, rather than sin again. Please, Lord, uh, I'm weak through this fasting, but I, I am weak because it reminds me of my total dependence upon you. What are some other benefits? David said, I humbled myself with fasting. Psalm 35, verse 13. Now, isn't that an interesting result? You examine pride and you know that pride is almost impossible to destroy. It's, it's so difficult to crucify. And yet here is a verse where David said, oh, yeah, you just fast. That fasting has a power to crucify your pride. I humbled myself with fasting. What are some other benefits? Paul said, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27. And so he's saying that fasting has an ability to subdue those uh, unruly passions of our body. And there are many, many people who have said, man, they have noticed once they gain control of the appetites of hunger in their, for food, they find it spills over into a subduing of other fleshly temptations like sexual temptation. One person said the beneficial results of the fast are felt first in the sexual sphere. I have easily verified the connection established by the ancients between the first two principal vices, gluttony and lust. And consequently, between the corresponding disciplines, fasting and chastity. By the way, Pure Life Ministries makes this as an absolute essential component. This is one of the most remarkable ministries, um, Kentucky, I think it is, that has helped people who are some of the worst addicts to pornography and uh, other sexual sins and has gotten them completely out. But fasting is a critical area. And they, uh, the guy himself who had started that ministry, he was so deeply involved in it, it was just horrible. But he says when he starts laxing off and beginning to pig out on sugar and stuff like that, he immediately finds his sexual temptations coming back. And so there is a close connection between the two. But anyway, the author goes on to say, it will surprise no one if I confess that I am subject to anxiety and irritation, sadness and nervousness, to say nothing of vanity, touchiness or envy. The habit of fasting effects a profound appeasement of all these instinctive movements. Another, <clears throat> fasting is a spiritual aid to subduing all sinful desires. And so David says, I chasten myself with fasting. Psalm 69.10. Another version has a little bit more clearly. I mortify my flesh through fasting. He's saying I'm putting to death my fleshly desires so that I can live to the Spirit. There's many verses that testify to the power that fasting gives over demons. And I've listed a number of them for you. I'm only going to look at one. In fact, why don't you turn there with me to Daniel chapter 10. <clears throat> now, in Daniel 10, there's this enormous battle that's going on <clears throat> in the heavenly places between elect angels and demonic angels, fallen angels. And I want to cut right to the middle of the story. 
chapter 10, beginning at uh, verse 10. Suddenly, a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days. Behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now, the angel said that the intense spiritual warfare that was going on came about because of two things. First, the prayer of Daniel, and second, the humbling of Daniel before God. Now, that phrase, to humble oneself, is a synonym in the Hebrew for fasting. And um, if you look down at verse 3, you'll see that's exactly what Daniel had been doing for those three weeks. I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Now, Three weeks is the same as the 21 days of the warfare. And so he's indicating there was a clear connection between the spiritual warfare and the prayer and fasting. I've got a book on my shelf that's called Power Through Prayer. But I think an even more appropriate title would be Power Through Prayer and Fasting because of the way those two have been held uh, together in the Scripture. You're probably all familiar with the time when the disciples couldn't cast out a demon. They tried. They were unsuccessful. Christ comes along, he casts the demon out, and that prompts the disciples to ask, why could we not cast him out? So they're basically wondering, how come you can cast him out and we couldn't cast him out? And I want you to notice that Christ's answer is not, hey, I'm God and you're not. (laughs) He expected that they would be able to cast them out as well. The only clue that he gives as to the difference between the power that he had as the ideal man to cast out demons and their inability was that he was fasting. He says, so he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Mark 9 indicates there are some battles that you have with spiritual demons and with demons that you will never gain the victory on if you have not engaged in fasting. It just will not happen. Uh, We need to do it. We need to teach our children to do it. And if Christ, the perfect man, needed to fast when he was engaged in his spiritual warfare with Satan, how in the world are we going to think that we're going to be able to do it without fasting? Uh, Some people think, well, maybe we have to fast because we're sinners. It doesn't have anything. I mean, sin does factor into sometimes why we fast. But Jesus, the sinless man, the perfect man, he had to engage in fasting for that full 40 days. Why? Because he was being tempted. The most severe trials that he's probably ever been through or anyone's been through during 40 days. We're familiar with the last four trials, the last four temptations. But Luke chapter 4, verse 2 says that Christ was tempted throughout that entire 40-day period by the evil one. Thus, the need for 40 days of fasting. I've already quoted Charles Hodge. He said, all eminently pious persons have been more or less addicted to this mode of spiritual culture. And once you've experienced extended periods of fasting, say two weeks with nothing but water, you begin 
to love and appreciate that discipline because you experience a power you have not experienced otherwise. Isaiah 58 uh, gives a long summary of the benefits of godly fasting. We're going to end with this passage. I'm just going to give you a a read, uh, just a, a few verses from here. It says, as a result of fasting, he says, then your light shall break forth like the morning, your healing shall spring forth speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. Then your light shall dawn in the darkness. Your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Is that not incredible? Let me just summarize those for you. Answered prayer, guidance, spiritual healing, physical healing, spiritual satisfaction, refreshment, spiritual strength and vigor and prosperity. And you might think, man, those have got to be exaggerated claims. And yet thousands of saints down through history have testified that it works. It really does work. It brings spiritual vigor and fasting into your life. And so this is why Christ says when we fast, this is in Matthew 6, Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. That is the promise of a God who cannot lie. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And so I hope you will not neglect the spiritual discipline. Three weeks ago, I was really convicted by this passage uh, that I I need to be involved in fasting more and committed myself uh, to do so. But I encourage you, don't neglect this powerful tool of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and the reminders that it gives. And there's so many other lessons that we could learn from these verses. But I pray that this one lesson here would be something that would characterize our church, that we would become a church with spiritual power because we're a church that takes fasting seriously. May we not do it in our own flesh. May it not be for our glory uh, of us and through us and to us. But Father, may it truly be for Your glory of You and through You and to You. And uh, Father, I pray that uh, as a result of our laying hold by faith of this thing that seems foolishness to man, what in the world could there be any relationship between fasting and other things? But as by faith, we lay hold of this. Father, that You would just cause this church to break forth and cause the families to have uh, spiritual successes and uh, strongholds being cast down and uh, rebellion being uh, brought into submission and uh, other areas that we are struggling with and grieving over that we would see success coming because we have by faith taken You at Your Word. We thank You, Father. We believe You that You will indeed reward us. And uh, we give you all the praise and all the glory. In Christ's name, amen.